Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you here. As uh, Lenny mentioned earlier, we are starting the season of Advent. And uh, one of the things that I love about going through the season of Advent is that growing up, uh, going to church, we did not celebrate Advent. That's not what I love about the season of Advent. But <laughs> we, we didn't grow up celebrating the season of Advent. And so it's like we did whatever we were doing, and then Christmas was here, and yay, Christmas! And then we went right back to whatever else we were doing. And uh, some, one of the reasons that we as a church here celebrate Advent together is because it allows us to really prepare ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, to look at everything that was going on uh, in the time that he was born, to look at all that his birth means to us. And so this morning is the, is the first Sunday of Advent where we light the candle of hope. Our key scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, but I'll read it here for you this morning. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." As we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, there are so many other things that we look forward to as well. And one of the main things that we look forward to is Jesus' return. There are striking similarities and huge differences between both fear and hope. As we look to the future, there is uncertainty we don't know exactly what will happen, when it will happen, or how it will happen. Now, when fear takes hold of that uncertainty, it turns it into something that gnaws on our insides and hollows us out. It brings every possible worry, every possible negative scenario into our minds, and it says that the uncertainty of the future is something that we need to be concerned about. And that fear can immobilize us and cause us to make decisions we would never make on an average day as a means to protect ourselves. Hope, however, takes the uncertainty that lies in front of us and it fills us with a feeling that maybe we can't explain at the time. But as we recognize this uncertainty that lays in front of us, there is something in us that tells us through Jesus Christ, we have hope that we will overcome whatever it is that comes our way, whatever our future may be. We, amongst all others in the world, have great reason to be people of hope. Because while we may not know what will happen tomorrow, we know that our ultimate future is not in question. We are not filled with uncertainty because we have been given a promise. We are, in fact, a people of promise. And that promise tells us that while our lives on this world matter, we have another life waiting for us. 
that we are more than conquerors in Christ who has overcome this world and this life. Amen? Amen. That while we have a home here, we have a home waiting for us, an incredible home with a room waiting for each of us that was made for us by our Father. And that while we have trouble and uncertainty in this place, that there is another place for us where those troubles and uncertainties will be wiped away by the very hand of God. We are the people of promise. And because we are the people of promise, we hold our heads high in the face of whatever may come. Because God has given us hope through Jesus Christ. Are you a voice for hope in your world? So as I said earlier, um, one of the reasons that we celebrate Advent is so that we can pay more attention to the birth of Jesus instead of just acknowledging it on the Sunday before Christmas. And um, we get to spend a whole, a whole month uh, talking about the birth of Jesus and what the birth of Jesus means. Uh, but Advent starts out in a really interesting way. When, when you start uh, observing Advent, you find that the first Sunday of Advent really isn't about the birth of Jesus. Like in our minds, that's what would make sense is you start talking about how Jesus was born and all those different things. But the first Sunday of Advent, actually, you spend time looking to the end of the story. Uh, instead of focusing at the beginning of Jesus' story, we look at the end. Uh, when I was graduating with honors from Pepperdine... Because I know you were, I know you were curious about that. I found myself in a very interesting place. My whole life lay there ahead of me. I this is no joke. I had just won two awards, two awards, mind you, for being a Christian. One even involved cash. Wow. That's right, and. Uh, So I knew, as I was nearing the end of my college experience, uh, in general, what I wanted to do. I, and if you would have asked me at that time, I would have said, I want to go wherever God wants me to go. I want to do, what's so funny, Nisha is laughing, Nisha's laughing in the front row, like, that that, that makes me, okay. (sighs) She knows something, Nisha must know something. I'll go wherever God wants me to go. I will do what God wants me to do. And this was how I was feeling. I knew that in general terms, I wanted to go into youth ministry at some point, that I wanted to work for a church. And I prayed that God would lead me to the place with the right fit. And there were a ton of churches in Southern California. I had met ministers from uh, several of them. Did I mention I won two awards for being Christian? (laughs) Yes. And so I was ready for the doors to open for me. Um, There was one small problem in that I hadn't applied for any jobs. (laughs) This is true. I don't know, I can't remember now exactly what I thought was going to happen, but I, I think somewhere in my mind I was thinking that, you know, I would just, something would pop up, I would apply for that. I didn't think people were gonna like knock on the door to my apartment and say, please Bryce, Come work for us. 
I didn't think that was going to happen, but I hadn't applied for anything yet, but I just knew uh, that the right opportunity was going to come. Uh, maybe I'd even live by the beach somewhere, like that's a possibility. Uh, and I was also, at the time, considering going to graduate school. And I was sort of, uh, as a religion student, I was kind of right on the edge. Uh, I graduated in 1999. And a lot of students prior to me uh, didn't start getting their MDiv or their uh, Master of Theological Studies or those kinds of things yet. Uh, right after me, all, a lot of the students after the year that I graduated, a lot of them started getting their MDivs. And so I was sort of kicking this idea around, you know, some people were telling me that, you know, I, I know someone at Yale, I know someone at Princeton, maybe you can go to those places. And I'm thinking, oh, Yale, yeah. That might, that might work. I mean, I don't know if I can fit it into my schedule to try for one of those places. And so my, my general plan in the back of my mind was that I would just go to, I would go to graduate school at Pepperdine and I would work with campus ministry who I'd worked for the previous four years and I would uh, be one of their full-time interns and I would do all of this and that's what would happen. I would, um, I also had not applied for graduate school at Pepperdine yet, but <laughs> I was pretty sure I was pretty sure I, w I had that one uh, going on. So two things happened. Um, one is that I, I never applied to graduate school at Pepperdine, and it came time where they were accepting everyone, and I missed that time window. Uh, and the second thing happened that happened was I was not offered a job to come back to work for campus ministry. Yeah, I know. Who wouldn't want to work with me? <laughs> if you'd like an alphabetical list, I could get that for you at some point. <laughs> but uh, all jokes aside, this was a this was a crushing blow to me. Um, I got caught up in something that even to this day I don't understand. Um, but campus ministry at Pepperdine, they had always hired two full-time interns, and I was in line for that job. And the year that they didn't hire me was the one year in their 15, 20-year history that they hadn't hired two, they only hired one. And uh, all of a sudden, I had no idea what to do. None. Zero. Zip. I'm thinking about, I had worked at Old Navy in, in Clovis at that time. I actually helped open one of the first Old Navy stores, uh, one of the first, like, five. And um, so I thought, well, uh, shoot, I'm going to go back to, to Fresno. <laughs> and I'm going to live with my parents. <laughs> and I'm going to fold jeans for the rest of my life. <laughs> Something to that effect. And I just, I wasn't sure what to do. And everything that I had hoped for and everything that I knew was going to happen didn't. Except it did. A friend of mine had submitted my name to um, the youth ministry search team at her home church in Arlington, Virginia. And I had gone on this interview early in the year, but I wasn't going to take this job. Because... It's Virginia. <laughs> and that's a long way from here. 
But I went, uh, and I had never interviewed, as we have already established, I, <laughs> I hadn't interviewed for a, a job yet like this, and so I wanted the, so I went, I had a great time, I had a great interview, but I came home, uh, this was earlier in the semester, and I thought, there's no way, and, and everything's coming down, and I get a call from this church in Virginia, and they uh, offered me the job. And after everything that had happened, and I'm just going to be totally honest with you, after everything that had happened, I had no other choices at that moment. So I took the job to become a youth minister in Virginia. Now, that may be the most unromantic version of calling to ministry and getting your first position that you've ever heard. How'd you end up here? Well... <laughs> they called. <laughs> but that's how that happened. And whether you know it or not, that entire story is a story about hope. Now, it doesn't seem like it's a story about hope. But it is a story about hope. God answering prayer and following and me following a call in my life that I might not have heard otherwise. But something that I want you to know is that in spite of how all that happened, I ended up where God wanted me to be. I have no question or doubt about that. And here's the other thing that I just want to throw this in as a side note. Every time I have moved to a different church, it has been a messy and confusing process. Some of you who were involved in bringing me here know that's true. Some of you who were involved when I left the first time <laughs> know that this is true. Um, but this illustrates something that I would like for you to keep in the back of your mind, and that is this. Hope, and by extension, faith, is not as easy as we sometimes talk about it being. As if having hope means everything's going to be okay and work out just like you want it to. And as if having faith in something means that you will have a smooth road on the way to that something. Those things are not true. In fact, you could argue that faith doesn't exist at all if the road is smooth. Because where do you actually have to step out and do something if the road is smooth? But a larger question springs to the surface from the story that I just told you. And that is this. What happens when the hope you want is different from the hope you receive from God? Okay, say that one more time. What happens when the hope you want is different than the hope you actually receive from God? Now, this is a complicated question, which will take some time and consideration for each of you to answer. Because to a degree, I can't answer some of these questions for you. I can only tell you what I've experienced in my life and what I see in the story of Jesus. But here's what I mean by this question. Sometimes we hope for things in our lives. 
And sometimes we have a plan, a plan that we even believe is one that is formed by God. We pray to God about it, we talk to our spiritual friends about it, and we have these ideas of how things should happen. And sometimes, even though we hope for these things with even a godly hope, God does something that is completely different than what it was we were hoping for. God is faithful, God delivers, God gives, God leads. He just doesn't deliver what we want him to deliver. Is that still hope? Is hope still involved in that process? Although ultimately hope is involved in both outcomes, let's not kid ourselves by thinking that the path from one hope to the other is an easy one. That somehow rectifying that we didn't get what we thought was going to happen, but we still have God's presence, that's a difficult transition for us to make, isn't it? It can be. Now, a few weeks ago, as we were going through our campaign, we defined uh, what hope is. And so we're going to go back to that definition really quick just to help us lay the groundwork again today. What is hope? Now, hope is something that is hard to nail down, and it is for this particular reason. Hope is not tangible. Okay, you may remember this. Hope is not tangible. It is not something that you can touch. In fact, hope can really only exist if we have not received whatever it is that we are hoping for, and we don't have complete control over whether our hope can be fulfilled or not. I'll give you the example that I gave last time when we talked about this. Okay? You may hope that you get this great new job. Okay? But in order to get this great new job, which this is a lesson I have learned since my senior year of college, you have to do what? You have to apply for it. Right? And just applying for this great new job, does that mean you're going to get the job? No. What must you then do? You must... Hope they call back. If they don't, maybe you call them. If you get an interview, you have to shower and comb your hair and brush your teeth. And you have to go to these and you have to give the best version of yourself. And then you have to hope that they like the best version of you and that they choose you for this job. So at the front end of this process, hope abounds. But there's things you have to go through in order to receive what you are hoping for, the promise. And then, once you get that job, does hope continue to exist in that frame? No. Because you have received what it was that you hoped for. Hope, by its very nature, there is something that is intangible about it. What is the point? Hope is is something that we have, that we believe in, that we can hold on to, and yet there is a part of it that is always going to be just beyond reach because that is the nature of hope. Which means that hope, by its very nature, also involves more than a little bit of faith. I'm not sure you can really have hope without faith because the two go hand in hand in this, in this case. Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So that makes a lot of sense with the definition we just talked about with hope. Faith is like hope, but everything is kind of ratcheted up a notch. Okay, Faith like hope exists 
only in relationship to the things that are a little bit out of our reach. Proof or experience may lend itself to you having faith. I have seen this. I have done this. I have experienced this. But faith still requires us to take a step out into the unknown. That is part of what faith is. Being sure of what we hope for, something that's out there, and certain of what we do not see. Now, when I was, how old was I when I graduated from college? 99, let me do math really quick. 20 years ago, however long ago it was, 18 years ago, um, when I, when I graduated, I had faith in God. I believed without a doubt that he loved me, that he would guide me, that he would lead, lead me to the right opportunity. I believed that. I believed that before my senior year, that coming into my last year of college, that God would give me what I needed, that he would take me to the right place. But something happened along the way, and my hope for what would happen became less about what God might have wanted for me, and more about what I kind of wanted for me. And I don't know when that happened, but it did. And I ended up in the place that God wanted me to be, again, without doubt. But God had to do some, I just have to be straight with you, hurtful things to me in order to get me to the place that he wanted me to go. Because that's not the place I would have chosen even though it was the place he wanted me to be. And in the end, my hope that I would go to the place that I wanted to be had to be realigned with my core hope that God would take me to the place he wants me to be. But there were two different hopes that were alive. Why does this matter? Well, As we talked about last week, Jesus was born into a specific time and place. And here are some of the important things we covered just in case you were either not here or here and unconscious at the time that I was talking about this. (laughs) The world was in a state of unrest when Jesus was born. Empires had come and gone and the nation of Israel had not ruled itself for several generations. By the time of Jesus, Israel was under the specific control of the Roman Empire, which was the biggest one in the world, in the known world at the time, and they had given local control to an unhinged Jewish elite uh, named Herod, who called himself king. And again, he is the one who ordered that an entire generation of children be killed because his successor was supposed to be in that generation of children. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. The people of Israel themselves were divided uh, against one another. Uh, One group who actually had wealth and power were trying to keep the system in balance so that Rome would not get angry with them and they could keep the influence that they had. Another group was so frustrated by the fact that that they had become sort of this Roman puppet, that they were trying to restore Israel back to what they were supposed to be. So they went back to the scripture and the word of God, and they looked at the law, and they said, this is who we are. This describes every movement. This describes what we should do, what we should think, how we should act. And they called people back to that relentlessly. And then there was a third group of people, which we didn't even talk about last week, that believed the only way to regain their position was to overthrow the Romans and that revolt was the way of restoration for the people of God, that they had to begin to fight back. 
that they wouldn't get anything if they just sat there and kept taking it over and over again. So the time of the coming of Jesus was definitely a time of turmoil, but in spite of that, there was a common hope that the people of Israel shared, as divided as they were. The people of Israel were waiting for the Messiah to return just as God had promised. Their hope was based on their reading of what God had promised them. And this was the foundational hope that they carried. Someday the Messiah will come and he will change things for us. So they believed he would do certain things. They believed that the Messiah would bring legitimacy to the nation of Israel. Again, they had been slaves to other people for a long time. Even now they were just pretending to own themselves. But Rome was really in charge. And so this was what they believed. They believed that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would raise up the position of Israel. And to, so they would basically be the power in the world. And all other nations would have to bow down and fall down before the nation of Israel. They believed that the city of Jerusalem itself would be restored as the greatest city on the face of the earth. And that, you know, it, Jerusalem is kind of on a, they called it a mountain. It's not really a mountain, but it is elevated. But you see this throughout the prophets. This idea of the city of Jerusalem almost literally being physically higher than any other city on the face of the earth. That there would be no one who would look down on the city of Jerusalem. Instead, everyone would look up to Jerusalem. Every wrong that had been done to the people of Israel through generations of exile and control by other nations would be repaid. They would be the people of God and God would raise them up. And like when Joshua went into the Holy Land, there would be no one who could stand in front of them. This was their dream. This is what they believed would happen. Now, some of those things, as I mentioned, the prophets had talked about, and they did speak of a time when restoration would happen, when enemies would fall, and when Jerusalem would be raised up. So, if you were a Jew at the time, it would be easy to count this hope as a spiritual hope. But their hope had actually become much more personal and earthly in practice. So, while it was maybe like rooted in what God had said, just like me, they took it over and made it into something else. Their foundational hope that God would restore changed to the hope and dream that they would be on top of everyone else. And that's what God's returning meant. Everyone would be below them. This illustrates something very important for us. While the announcement of Jesus' birth may have been spectacular, angels, stars, shepherds, wise men, gifts, Jesus himself was not spectacular. I imagine Jesus was an ugly baby. I mean, think about it for a second. Jesus was born out of wedlock to a teenage girl and her poor carpenter fiancé. He was more or less a homeless person through his public adult life. He hung out with the worst kinds of people. The worst kinds of people. The people that no one else wanted to be around. 
But more than that, he had no real political power and never tried to take any. Like, he never tried to take control of things like the Messiah was supposed to. He was not going to overthrow. He didn't have an army. He didn't curry favor with the rich and the powerful. He didn't kiss up to anyone. He was not here to push enemies out of the way. He was here to bless his enemies. And for the people who had been waiting for something different for a really long time, this was a problem. This was a real problem. That Jesus was not who they hoped he would be. Their hope did not match the hope that God was offering to them. Now keep in mind that these were the people who were supposed to want what Jesus had to offer, but they couldn't want it because the hope that Jesus offered didn't match up with what they really wanted and what they hoped would happen. In fact, Jesus was a terrible disappointment. A terrible disappointment. You mean this is all there is? This is God's big plan for this to happen for you? You smell funny. You're dirty. You're homeless. Look at who you hang out with. And so these people had spent all their time waiting and looking for the Messiah to come did not want him when he got here. They just, they weren't ready for him. What happens when the hope that we want doesn't match up with the hope that God gives us? What happens when God's plan for how things should go don't match our plan for how things should go? And is anyone else in this room a little bit intimidated by how quickly our spiritual hope and faith in God can turn into a physical hope and faith grounded in what we hope to get right now? Or in the desire for the easiest path? There are two songs which really illustrate this for me when we talk about how we look at our lives and how we look at the promises that God gives us versus the promise that we hope for. Uh, the first song, and we're going to listen to just snippets of these songs here. The words will be up on the screen behind me. The first song is called Waiting for My Real Life to Begin. And it's by an artist named Colin Hay, who used to be with Men at Work. If you, are, if you remember those days. Um, but this song is uh, the first part here of Waiting for My Real Life to Begin by Colin Hay. Uh, I, I love this song for a lot of reasons. One of, it, one of the reasons that I think that it so honestly expresses what most people feel about life here. And what he is waiting for is he is waiting for his real life to begin, as he says. But when is his real life going to begin? whenever the next thing happens. And so he's hoping for something. He doesn't know what it is. He can't even tell you. In fact, the next line of a song is, I woke today and suddenly nothing happened. <laughs> and so he wants this thing that will give him whatever validation, whatever purpose, whatever meaning, whatever this is, but he doesn't know what it is. And the sad thing is, is that the song itself knows it's not going to happen. Right? The singer 
the main voice kind of doesn't. He's waiting, but the song knows it's not going to happen. The second song is by someone named Andrew Peterson, and his song is called More. And um, so we're going to listen to a brief snippet from this song. Okay. So two different songs about the same thing. They're about the same thing. Now, the second one is about death, (laughs) which I know what you're thinking right now. Bryce needs to listen to happier songs. (laughs) But this, this second song takes the same concept and turns it on its head because this song is actually not a sad song. It's not. And it takes that same longing and desire and says all of this getting up and falling down and getting up again, like this can't be, this can't be what this is all about. There has to be more, more than all of this. So how the question that comes to mind is if we live somewhere in the space where these two songs are true and they both represent our hope, how do we keep our hope centered on God and not ourselves? The first thing I think we need to realize is this. God never intended for us to live apart from him. This was never part of God's plan for him to be over there and us to be over here. For us to not be able to see him. God intended for us to be with him, but since the fall of man, we have been separated from God. Now through the blood of Jesus, we are brought back into an intimate relationship with God, but we are still away from him. And here's something that I want you to understand. You should feel that separation because it's real. That longing, that hurting, that hole in your heart, that is being away from God. That is living in a state that we were not meant to live in. We should naturally, church, be frustrated with life here. Naturally frustrated with life here. I know I read this passage to you a lot, but I love it so much, and it just so uh, explains this thought process. But from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, for we know that if the earthly, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I love this passage so much. One, because uh, I love the visuals that he 
creates within this passage. And he touches on some things for us that all of us understand. No one wants to be naked in public. Well, let me rephrase that. In general, (laughs) people do not want to be naked in public. And and with... If you ever found yourself, you know, people always used to talk about those dreams of, you know, you go to school and then you look down, you're not wearing any clothes, that whole stuff. Because that that feeling that Paul is trying to capture is the cap is the feeling of this just this is not right. And I need to be out of here now. I need to be out of here now. Like this, there is nothing, no way to change this situation except to get out of here. The longing that we feel is not for a better, more accomplished life here in this place. It is not a vindication or, or prominence in this society. The longing that we feel is to be reunited with God. That is the pull that is on our hearts at all time. And this is where our true hope lies. Everything else good that happens to us on earth is just window dressing on the way to God. That's all it is. And it is good. And it is a blessing. And there are wonderful things about it. But you're still living in a tent. No matter how nice that tent is. No matter if it's bigger than someone else's tent. It doesn't matter. It's still a tent. And you have a home. And you know you have a home. And that feeling is being away from God. But this points out something important. In, o- in order for us to truly grasp on to that hope that God lays out for us, we have to be dissatisfied with our life here. If we can't see the tent, then why are we going to want the home? If we believe the tent is the home, then why are we going to want to leave it? We have to be dissatisfied with what things look like here. Secondly, God gives us what we need, but it is what we need until we are reunited with Him. We can't mistake the gifts and blessings that we have here for permanence. There is no permanence to it. God gives us what we need until we meet Him. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-9. through 9. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus conforming our testimony about Christ amongst you. And listen to this. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, we need to change our perspective a little bit. Our life here on earth is a wonderful thing, but we are not supposed to be in love with our life here on earth, and God doesn't bless us so that we will love earth more than heaven. That's not the reason we have those things. Our life here does not compare with the life that we will have when we are reunited with God. Therefore, the blessings that we receive from God in this place are not meant to help us love our life here. They are meant to help us hold on in our impatience for God to come. 
and our desire for this whole stupid circus to end and for us to just go home and rest. That is why God blesses us here. He gives us the strength. He gives us the gifts of the Spirit so that we can hold on until we see Him again. And this is where our true hope lies. We know that one day Jesus will return and when Jesus returns, we will leave this place behind. And that is the greatest hope, the greatest thought, the greatest thing that we could ever have. Isaiah chapter 64 puts it this way. And what I want you to listen to is not just the imagery, but the feeling behind it. There is a longing to these words that we need to identify with. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear is perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when you continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and we have given and you have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. For whatever reason, Isaiah is writing this, whatever's happened with the people, which some pretty serious stuff went down. The thing that I want you to understand is this. He acutely feels the difference between being with God and not being with God. Like it is something he can't deny. And the one thing that his heart is crying out for is to be with God again. Because he remembers what it was like. God, when you are on your side, this is what it's like. But now we are apart from you. And he needs true hope. He can't find it anywhere around him. God does not transcend this world just because he is great and mighty. God transcends this world because he is great and mighty and because he acts on our behalf. Because he takes us beyond this place. He is the God who acts on our behalf. He is our Father and if we cry out to him... He will come for us. And this is what God desires. He wants us to cry out to Him. He wants us to realize how much we need Him. He wants us to be uncomfortable here and for the cry of our hearts to be reunited with Him. And so we wait and we watch. We live in readiness and expectation because you know what? We want Jesus to return. We want Him to. We want Him to come back. We want all of this to change. So what happens when the hope we get is not the hope we want? Well, we basically have two options. I wish I could offer you more, but I'm not going (laughs) to. 
The first one is this. We can reject the hope that God gives us and cling to the hope that we think we deserve. And we can even say that God is not good because he didn't give us the hope that we think we deserve. We can insist in the name of God that this path we're going on is not the path that God wants us to take. And in our selfishness and blindness, we can take the hope that God offers us and just put it on the cross. Or we can recognize that though this looks like a terrible idea and that this really would be better for me or this really would be more comfortable for me is probably the more true thing, that what God offers us is greater than what we think we want. A lot of you in this room have had children. Your children think they want a lot of things. They think they want to touch hot things. Like fire. Fire is really pretty. They want to touch it. You know what's going to happen. And so you lead them on a different path. We can recognize the hope that we are offered is greater than the hope that we desire, even if we don't totally understand it. We can be like those who are not so in love with all that they had and thought they deserved. They could not recognize the Son of God when He was standing in front of them because He didn't look like what they wanted Him to look like. And He didn't say what they wanted Him to say. And He didn't do what they wanted Him to do. He did better stuff than that. And they missed it. They missed it. Because he didn't do what they wanted. We can embrace the coming of the poor, homeless, powerful, loving, miraculous Savior who did not come to put Rome under his feet, but to put our sins on the cross. That through his death, we might have life eternally. I'm sorry, I didn't doesn't seem like you believe that very much. I got a sort of an under-the-breath amen from Michelle, who's, who's trying to keep it going, and I appreciate that, Michelle. He came to save the lives of those who were, are, and will be lost, hurt, and without hope. For the birth of Jesus and his return to take us home both point to the same truth. And that truth is this. There is more. More than all this pain. More than all the falling down and the getting up again. There is more. More than we can see from our tiny vantage point in this vast eternity. There is more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your son Jesus. We are thankful for his birth, the way that he came to this earth to live. We are thankful for the life that he lived, the people that he touched and loved. We are thankful for his death and his resurrection, which give us freedom. God, may we not confuse what we want with what you want. And God, may we not be angry or frustrated or lose hope when you take us on a path that is the one you want and not the one we want. May we submit to you, Father. May we trust you and say, you know... God, you probably know better than I do. And God, may we rejoice in the fact that you are the redeemer of all things, so that even if it all falls apart, you are a God who can still put it back together. And we praise you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who offers you a lasting hope beyond 
the things that this world can offer you. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.